read the Word of God in Luke 22, reading the first 34 verses. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. They went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. When the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also after this, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth. It's not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Thus far we read the word of God. We consider verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, 
Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Beloved saints in Christ, think over your life to this point. And in your own mind, identify for yourself what was the greatest trial that you have to this point encountered. Think of how severe that trial was. And then consider whether along with that trial there came this temptation to cast off your faith. That's not uncommon. That's not at all unheard of that a child of God would be so sorely tried that he would say, why am I a Christian? What use is it? What good is Jesus Christ to me? Forgetting, of course, the great spiritual salvation he's provided for us, but looking at and being grieved with the earthly trials of life. Maybe you say in that trial, or did say, if Christ is my Savior, why hasn't he delivered me? Why is my trial not over? Why is my earthly life not more pleasant? And if I were to tell you that at that moment, Jesus Christ, as your Savior, was interceding for you that your faith fail not. What then would be your response? My faith fail not. I need a trial to be over. I don't need Jesus Christ to be praying for me. I need him to come right now. That is the wrong way. But that is the way that God's people sometimes think. If Christ is my savior, he ought to be paying attention to the status of my earthly life right now. And He ought to be making it better right now. We're going to see this afternoon. Is that Jesus Christ, our praying intercessor, our interceding mediator, is the Christ we need, is the Christ we have, and is the Christ who in the moment of greatest trial and temptation is showing his love for us, praying that our faith fail not. The doctrine that's embedded in this text is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. The saints are preserved in light of and in spite of and in the way of trials and temptations. So Jesus says to Peter that there would be a great temptation that he and the other disciples were about to undergo, and that in that temptation, Jesus Christ has prayed for Peter that his faith fail not. Although then there are many components to how Jehovah God preserves us in temptation, many components to how he preserves us in faith, this one is going to be highlighted, the intercession of Jesus Christ. So I call your attention to the text under the theme... Christ's prayer for Peter's preservation. Predicting a violent shaking, first of all, 
Assuring him of an interceding mediator is second. And third, requiring a grateful response. Jesus has referred to his own temptations in the context. Ye are they which continued with me in my temptations. That is, he views his whole ministry as, in a sense, a temptation. Because in, during his whole ministry, although his own heart was devoted to Jehovah God and faithfully served God, yet Satan, using the Jews, time and time again, was trying to tell Jesus, throw it all away. Don't be this Jesus Christ whom the Old Testament promised. Don't set your mind to go to the death of the cross. Be an earthly king and you can have earthly glory now. Now he says to Peter and the twelve that have continued with him in his temptations that they are about to be tempted also. Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. It was the night in which Jesus would be betrayed. The Last Supper is finished. They're on their way to the Mount of Olives again. Presently, he will be arrested there. From there, taken to be tried, killed, and eventually raised again. But the temptation that the disciples would face in that hour is that of denying Jesus Christ. As he stands on trial before the high priest, if they identify with him then they too are in trouble. Their own hide is at stake. Their own earthly life is endangered. And therefore, the temptation they would face would be to deny that Jesus was their Christ. On the one hand, our Lord's suffering required that his disciples do that. First of all, because it must be evident that he suffers alone. The very polemic reformed churches have against Rome's idea that Mary bears part of the sufferings of the wrath of God with Christ is one that we want to distance ourselves from here too. The disciples do not help Jesus suffer. He suffers alone, and that's one reason they must scatter Jesus Alone, but in the second place. You understand that sin has as its consequence that we are alone? Do you young people ever have somebody coming to you and saying, Cast in your lot with us, let's go do something together, it's going to be fun. Yes, it's against the law, but we're going to have fun together. There is fun in violating the law together. That's the world's philosophy, that's the devil's lie. And I don't suggest you try it and find out by experience, but many will testify, many who have tried it, will testify that when you get caught, suddenly you're not together anymore. Everyone will turn on everyone else, and whereas you thought you would be in it together for fun, you find you are all alone. And that just illustrates the point I'm making Sin has that as one of its effects. We are left alone. It was Adam against Eve and the two against each other in the Garden of Eden. Hell is not a place where sinners will be gathered together in fellowship with each other, but a place where each will suffer alone. That's what sin does. And to make clear that Jesus Christ is bearing our sin, 
that he is suffering that aloneness on our behalf, his disciples will forsake him. It was, as regards Jesus Christ, necessary. But, on the part of the disciples, it was a sin. It showed that they were, for the moment, more concerned with their earthly life than their spiritual. That, for the moment, they weren't ready to battle against Satan and his temptation. That this Jesus Christ they would leave, though they followed him for three and a half years, if their life depended on it. That was the temptation that the disciples were about to endure. Our Lord refers to that temptation in our text by a figure of the sifting of wheat. Before the days of combines and threshers, a wheat farmer found that by throwing the wheat high into the air, or perhaps riding over the wheat with a wagon or something with great force, Managed to get the grain of the wheat to be separated from the straw of the chaff. And that's the figure here. Satan wants to sift the disciples as wheat. Two things this illustration underscores. The first is what Satan's goal really is to separate, as it were, I said, the grain from the chaff, to separate the disciples from Jesus Christ. That bond of faith that Jesus Christ works in us by his grace, the Holy Spirit works it without our aid, is something that Satan is interested in destroying. And especially if he can't destroy the bond itself, that if he can get you and me to speak as if the bond does not exist, that is his goal. And in the second place, therefore, the figure is to the point because Satan is violent in his attempts to get us to deny and destroy Christ. You don't separate or thresh the wheat by a little toss. It's not something that just happens with little effort. It takes force. It takes violence. And so the disciples will be tempted when they see Jesus tried. Now, if the 12 disciples, of course 11 now because Judas is gone. If the 11 disciples are subject to that temptation with that intensity, the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages is also. What is a temptation? Let's be clear on that a moment. Temptation is when Satan dangles before you and me a word that is the exact contrary of the word of God in the scriptures. A word about what brings happiness, what brings pleasure, what brings lasting joy. When he says, for instance, that sin or that unbelief will bring you those pleasures and makes it look so attractive to you and to me that we are ready, as was Eve in the Garden of Eden, to say, well, then God was wrong. Satan is right, the fruit is good for food, it is beautiful, I shall eat. That's temptation. Every child of God is tempted. The form that our temptations take varies from person to person. Always they come down fundamentally to this, though, the God, that God did not mean what he said in the Ten Commandments, or did not mean what he said in the Scriptures. 
every child of God is tempted. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And therefore, the temptation the disciples faced is one you and I do to one degree or another, at one time or another, also face. And particularly, if the 11 disciples of all the humans who followed Jesus at that time would face such a violent temptation, the office bearers of the church of Jesus Christ also are prone to face the same. There are two factors that Jesus refers to in our text that explain further the violence of the temptation that the disciples would endure and that explains the violence of the temptations that you and I endure. The first is Satan. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as we. That makes sense to you and to me. From the viewpoint of biblical truth, reformed doctrine, that makes sense. We are taught that God does not tempt us, for uh, James 1 verse 13. He leads us into temptation, the Lord's Prayer, we pray that he not. He does so in this sense. Not that he works the delight, the desire in our heart, but that he brings us into a circumstance in life where temptation really attracts us. In that sense, he leads us into he sometimes, as it were, says, as he did to David and to Peter, because you aren't getting it, because I am warning you, but you're saying you are strong in yourself, I will give you for just a moment to Satan, and you will see how strong Satan is. Satan tempts. Temptation is Satan's tool to destroy God's work of grace. God's work of gathering his church. Satan's goal is to make God appear to be the fool, the weaker one, the loser. And he uses temptation to that end. Now when in the text Jesus says Satan hath desired you. It does not just mean that it was in Satan's mind and heart. He means that Satan asked God to be given the power and freedom to tempt the disciples. That word ask is, expresses, or rather the word desired, expresses something that becomes expressed in asking. And so Satan has demanded of God, it's a strong word that way, demanded God's permission. And all you have to do is think back to the history of Job. Satan knows he's subject to God's power. He knows God is stronger than he, and he can't move or act apart from God's will. He wants you and I to think exactly the opposite, but he knows it himself. And so when it came to Job, he had to come to God, and he had to ask God's permission to take from Job all that Job had. Later, he had to come to God and say, I took from Job everything he had, but he's still a healthy man, so of course he's not going to curse you. If you let me strike him with sickness, he will curse you to his face God said, go ahead, try it. You may do anything I don't let you do, Satan. Try it, see if it works. And that's what Satan is doing here. He asks God, really demands God to let him. And one reason why he can be so bold in his demand is, as we read earlier in the chapter, 
God has already let Satan enter into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being one of the twelve. He's got Judas. Well, on the one hand, that explains the violence of our temptations. Satan is more powerful than we. And when God lets Satan try, test, and torment us, we will experience it in a violent way. The second factor that explains the violence is the weakness of man. And the Lord underscores that when he says, Simon, Simon. Three and a half years earlier when Jesus called Simon to be his apostle, he said, your father named you Simon. I'm going to name you Peter. Read John 1 verse 42. Which means rock. You're just a man. You're a weakling. You're a sinner. I'm going to make of you somebody great, strong. When now in our text, Jesus does not refer to him as Peter, though he will in verse 34, but Simon, and repeats it, Simon, Simon, he means to underscore Peter. Who you are by nature is a weakling and a sinner. You cannot endure this temptation in your own power. And that's a word that you and I also need to be reminded of. What I'm setting forth to this point, then, is our need for preservation. If that's the great doctrine of the text, it is the temptations we face. It is Satan's uh, effort and exertion in them to get us to renounce Christ. And it is our own weakness that makes that preserving grace of God necessary. And you could read in the Canons of Dort, 5th Head and Article 4, essentially the same points as I'm making here. When therefore our Lord says to him, but I have prayed for thee, he means to tell Peter that in the moment of Peter's greatest need and at the moment of Peter's greatest weakness and at the moment in which Satan will exert himself valiantly to be more powerful than God, Peter will be preserved in faith. That's our second point. And the second point, assured of messianic intercession, I want to set forth in five aspects what the essence of the doctrine of the preservation of saints is and show that embedded in the text is each of these five aspects. What then is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints? What does it mean? Well, that the saints will persevere be preserved, does not mean that we will never sin. And then it doesn't just merely not mean that we will never sin daily, those sins of infirmity. It does not itself guarantee that we will never fall deeply into sin. So that you and I are reminded of the need to be watchful and to pray and to guard and fight against sin. It was a David who was preserved, but David who fell into sin of adultery and murder. It was a Peter who was preserved, but a Peter who said three times, I know not the man. 
The doctrine of the preservation of saints does not mean we will never sin, nor that we cannot fall deeply into sin. It means these two things. First, our faith will not fail. The bond that unites us to Jesus Christ, by which his blessings and benefits become mine, will never be severed. Satan is trying to separate wheat from straw or chaff. And Jesus says, in the case of my own, it will not happen. Secondly, the doctrine of the preservation of saints means that because that faith, that bond that unites us to Christ never fails, our confession of him as our Lord and Savior will continue. It might be interrupted for a while. Peter said, I know not the man, but there will be a point again. Jehovah will bring us to that point when we say, he is my Lord and my God. Not only then the essence of salvation, our union with Christ, but the expression of it in our love for him. And thirdly, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints means and implies that when therefore we fall into sin... Jehovah will, by his grace, bring us to repentance. And when thou art converted, he said to Peter, I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when, not if, not we'll see, but when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. That, in a nutshell, is the doctrine of the preservation of saints. The second thing to do in setting forth that doctrine, is to underscore that this preservation is of a very personal character. Of course, God preserves his church. He preserves his elect. That's all true. He preserves each and every member of the church. That's the text. Simon, Simon, Jesus said to Peter, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you Eleven, all of you, remember that the word you in the King James Version is always a plural pronoun. But I have prayed for thee. So the Lord does something amazing. He says, Satan wants all twelve of you. And I prayed for one of you. I prayed for you, Peter. The point is not that Jesus did not pray for any of the other disciples. In fact, the application of the point is this. He prays for every one of his children. But especially Satan had Peter in mind, and especially Jesus prays for Peter. So the point I'm making is that the preservation of the saints is of a personal character. You are preserved by the intercession of Jesus Christ. I am preserved by the intercession of Jesus Christ. Each and every member of the body of Christ must and can say he preserves me also, not just a bunch of people, not just the church, but that I am a living member thereof. Thirdly, this is really the focus of the text. It's the means Christ uses to preserve us that are on the foreground here. Prayer. It doesn't deny, it doesn't rule out the great basis. 
The great basis for the preservation of the saints is the work Jesus Christ did in dying on the cross. It is his finished and completed work. That work is just looming. Its completion is less than 24 hours away when Jesus speaks these words to Peter. For you and for me, it's 2,000 years in the past. But so momentous a work, so great a work, what Jesus Christ did in bearing the wrath of God, in doing it completely, in saying it is finished, in dying and in rising the third day, that that becomes the basis for him to come to God now at God's right hand and pray for you and for me. I have prayed for thee. Indeed, Christ does three things as our high priest. One, he provides the perfect sacrifice. That aspect of his priestly work is finished, never to be repeated. Two, he intercedes for us the way a high priest prayed for the people of God. Three, he blesses us the way the high priest administered and pronounced the Aaronitic blessing. And those two aspects of the priestly work of Christ continue today and will to all eternity. I have prayed for thee. And who would you rather have praying for you in the moment of your temptations than Jesus Christ? Read the Belgian Confession, Article 26, later today as it sets forth why the intercession, intercession of Jesus Christ is so perfect that God would hear none other. Who else would he hear? Who else laid down his life on the cross? Who else is exalted at the right hand of God? Who else was the only begotten Son of God who in his whole life perfectly fulfilled the will of God? Who else would God hear? It is a gospel comfort to us to hear that Jesus Christ is interceding at God's right hand. As Christ intercedes on the basis of his own atoning work, notice how different Christ's approach to the Father is than Satan's was. Satan hath desired you Literally, Satan hath wanted to the point of demanding you, but I have prayed for thee. Satan comes demanding, Jesus Christ comes supplicating. Satan comes saying, because he's a sinner anyway, Jesus Christ comes saying, because I have died for him, I have died for her. And therefore... The means, in addition to the intercession of Jesus Christ on the basis of his own shed blood, the means of the preservation of saints includes the testimony of a saved sinner to another. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. It doesn't mean that Peter is doing something above and beyond what Jesus Christ did. 
It doesn't mean that Jesus Christ couldn't quite do it all. He could only save Peter, and it was up to Peter to go do the rest. There is in this text no basis, though Rome tries to find it, for the view that the Pope is really the successor of Peter and the apostles. And in the Pope today is all the salvation of the world to be found. No, not that. Jesus' point is not that he could only do so much and he needs humans to help him. It is this, that a converted sinner who knows that Jesus Christ has prayed for me is ready to go to one another and pray for and with them. Also, more on that in the third point. What is the purpose of the intercessionary work of Christ. That's the fourth thing to say about the doctrine of the preservation of saints here. Why is it that Jesus Christ prays for Peter and in praying preserves? Well, that God might show that the work of Christ on the cross is victorious is the first reason. If Jesus Christ has on the cross laid down his life for our sins, taken them all away, and worked in us his new life so that there is a bond of faith that unites us to him, we will be in heaven. Satan's efforts to keep us from going to heaven will be in vain. And yet, somehow that point must be conveyed to you and to me this doesn't just happen automatically it's of the grace of God in other words Jehovah could have said to Satan no you want my disciples no in fact I'm going to preserve them so much that you may so much as move a finger against them You must stay 200 miles away from them. Don't even come near them. Why is it that that's not the way God ordinarily preserves his church, but that rather he preserves us by having Satan throw us in the air, toss us around, trouble and torment us? And the answer is, so that Satan come to see how impotent, powerless he is against God's own people. But also the answer is, so that you and I understand how great our own need is. And don't just imagine that preservation just simply happens. Christ is off there taking care of us. But I see my need to be preserved. The disciples had to have that sense of need impressed on them. Peter himself did. If Judas was one of the so-called officers of the disciples, he was the treasurer. And if Peter held another, not necessarily office, but unofficial position of being the spokesman, you can't really deny as you study Peter's life that He was ready with the answer, and he often led the disciples in giving an answer. If that was Peter, what would come of the other ten? If Judas betrays Jesus and Peter denies him.
That's the issue here. And instead of saying that won't happen, instead of God determining his counsel that won't happen, God says it will happen. That will be the test to to which they are subjected. Satan will try, and in the end, all glory will be to God because it will be evident that none can prevail against the power of God. Now I bring you. To behold the glory and stand in awe at the wonder of having this God as our God. There's no other God. We know that. There is no other pretended God, no other idol God who preserves his own. There is no other religion who speaks as if their God does that. If their God does, in their mind, it's only in earthly and temporal matters. But what other God is there who says from eternity, I save, I will save that one, undeserving though he and she be, and who says in time, I've done all that I needed to to make and form the basis for their salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And who says, I have by my Holy Spirit in his or her heart done all that is necessary. He, she will be with me in heaven. What other God? On the basis of what other work? Of what other Messiah? There is none. Christianity is an exclusive religion. One God, one Savior, one way of salvation, one grace, one Christ. And in it, we find comfort. Because one other aspect of that exclusivity of the Christian faith is this. You and I benefit without having to contribute an iota to our own salvation. That's the point the apostles needed to have underscored on them and you and I do too. That's the reason why God will say to Satan instead of stay away, I'm going to take care of them, they're going to get to heaven. He says, go trouble them. And this explains any trouble that you've had in your life personally or as a congregation or we as a denomination. Behind it all, using whatever means God used, behind it all was Satan saying, destroy the church. And the reason the church is not destroyed is that God is saying, try it, try it. See what a fool you are. I will preserve my own. The fifth thing to underscore here about the doctrine of the preservation of the saints is that the saints of God have the assurance of preservation. Where Arminianism says 
You can't ever be sure. You may know that today you're a child of God, but you don't know you will be tomorrow because you can fall away. And whereas Rome says you cannot really be sure tomorrow if you are today, you cannot know that you'll go to heaven tomorrow because you could fall away. The Reformed faith and the biblical faith says if you know today that Christ died for you, you know you will go to heaven. Tomorrow you might not be sure of it. Then examine what it is that caused you to lose your confidence. But what is not the reason is that you failed and God therefore sends you to hell. The benefits of the death of Christ are for you. You can be assured of your preservation. And here are the words of Jesus Christ himself. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, of course, Peter will go through that moment of denying his Lord. But when he comes out on the other side, when he's penitent, and when later the Lord restores him to the office of discipleship and apostleship, he's not going to say, I'm not really sure. I'm living the way I am today to try to create in me a surety, a certainty that I don't otherwise have. He's going to say, I remember the words of my Savior. And then in his first epistle, second epistle, I have even a more sure word, and that's scripture. Our assurance of preservation, beloved, does not depend on an experience, a dream, some sensation that in some unusual way God has said something special to us. But in our looking at the crucified Lord Jesus Christ as he reveals himself in scripture and saying his death was full, finished, and complete for me. And he has given me faith and he will preserve me. One who has that assurance now manifests and lives out that assurance in his or her life. Peter must, and so Jesus Christ would say to him, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The need for the brothers to be strengthened is that they have been weakened. And we have another doctrine here that's related to preservation but even more to sin, to the need for preservation. And it is that sin on the part of those who are prominent in the church of Christ has an effect on the whole church. I'll state that a little differently. Sin on the part of any member of the church of Jesus Christ has an effect on the whole church. Earlier I said that office bearers are subject to the grievous temptations to which the twelve apostles were. And then if it should be that an office bearer falls into them, what effect does that have on the congregation, sometimes even on the denomination? A grievous effect, a widespread effect. And so it would here. The disciples would have left and now would have turned away from Jesus and would have renounced him. 
And the calling that comes to Peter is when you are converted because the effect of your sin and the sin of Judas Iscariot on the twelve was such that they all have left the service of Jesus Christ, restore them. That would be something Peter would begin to do, not by saying, I remember what the Lord told me, I have to go out and do it. That would be something Peter would begin to do when Jesus Christ appeared to him and John on Easter Sunday, and he and John ran to the other disciples and said, We have seen the Lord. He lives. His salvation is sure. And then Peter, with the other disciples, sent now to be apostles throughout the world, will carry out this calling when they go out to preach the gospel. Here really is the way to strengthen the brethren. It's to point us back to Jesus Christ. Now sometimes, God leads one person into a very severe temptation which that person falls into and sins very grievously in order to teach that person to be more watchful and more dependent on the grace of God, but also to tell that person that they are now to go warn each other, warn the brethren. Not only did Peter do that, as I explained, when he was made an apostle, but David the same. David in Psalm 51 Verse 13, having set forth at length the nature of his sin and expressed his own grief and remorse for that sin, said, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Now that I have tasted even more fully and deeply of the grace of God to me, a sinner, I am not going to be quiet about it. I'm going to teach others. And in that way, we strengthen our brethren. That's a response of gratitude that really is laid on each one of us. First of all, the office bearers. First of all, the preacher of the gospel and the gospel he preaches, that all his preaching be strengthening of the brethren. First of all, also the elders and deacons, especially in their work of oversight and in their work of of doing church discipline, that they go to the brother or sister who's erring and say, but there is forgiveness, there is power to fight in Jesus Christ. We do that work best when we know ourselves what a glorious grace has been shown us. But then every child of God, more broadly, who is there in your life whom you know, friend or family member, living in sin? Are you calling him or her to repentance? And are you doing it on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the promise of Christ to preserve his own in faith and laying before him or her the calling to believe? That's the calling that Jesus lays before Peter. So, Back to the questions with which I began. Do you remember a moment in your life when your faith was that weak? I'm not really suggesting you say, no, no, I had no such time. I'm imagining you did. Or you will. 
And when you realize your faith was that weak, that if it were up to you to continue in it and become stronger in it, you could never do it, did you find the person, the finished work, and the continuing intercession of Jesus Christ as your hope? You did. Because your faith has not failed. You and I then are the living testimony today that the preservation of the saints was not just something Jesus did to a select few, to the twelve, but it's something he does to all of his elect, the world over. Be assured of it. Rejoice in it. Live as those who are safe from Satan, not because he's become weak, not because we've become strong, but because Jesus Christ is exalted and powerful. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, preserve us. Oh, give us to see how dangerous Satan is. Give us to see how close he is. How weak we are. But for the sake of Christ. To see that we are safe. Safe from being destroyed. But because we are still subject to temptations. Give us never to say to our Lord. Who tells us that we will deny him. That we wouldn't. Give us never to suggest that we would go with him. Even unto death or prison. And we would be strong but every day to supplicate thy mercies, to beseech thy grace, to find in thee and in thy power the reason why we sure we shall persevere. For Christ's sake, amen.